in our contemporary culture, many see very little value in the church. If you were to go out in the average person in our community or in Edmonton or wherever, uh, and you ask them what the value of the church, they probably wouldn't see it as particular value. Some even may be antagonistic about it, much less attending one. And even the thought of attending was kind of, could be kind of distracting for them. And yet, if there was ever a time in history when the ministry of the true church was sorely needed, it's now. Many people are anguishing over spiritual emptiness in the secret places of the heart. Many people are concluding that there has to be more than just what we see on a day-to-day basis. Another reason for the spiritual search is the increasing breakdown of relationships. Marriages are failing. Families are fragmenting. Friendships falling apart. And we ask, can God be trusted? There's also a growing awareness that social engineers and government programs and increased funding for education are not going to eradicate the evils facing our society, and yet we continue to place our hope in them as though if we keep doing the same thing, it'll get better and better. I have no reason to believe that. Alcohol and drug abuse, pornographic exploitation, domestic violence, and general crimes continue to rise. Temptations facing young people are greater than ever. Casual sex, alcohol, and drugs are accepted aspects of high school life. With the entertainment media pumping out a constant anti-morality message, parents must look elsewhere for a healthier perspective. Technology, even in the medical field, has complicated our lives by raising ethical issues unimagined in past years. How would we respond to issues like genetic engineering or transgenderism and euthanasia? And the list goes on. Is there spiritual truth to guide us? Fear of environmental doom adds to our stress. We're bombarded daily with the prediction that climate change will soon bring calamity upon the earth, that within 10 years, 12 years, it's going to be calamitous. The sky is falling, and yet many people believe it very, very seriously. Terrorism has brought the subject of evil and search for its cure into a daily dialogue. How do we stop them, people ask. In an increasing dysfunctional society, individuals are becoming increasingly aware of their emotional wounds, their loneliness, and their need for help. Victims of childhood abuse need a safe place to heal. Those recovering from divorce need understanding and guidance. Single parents need emotional support and tangible help. Can they turn, as they must, to the God of the Bible? Can they find what they long for in his church? Yet few of these spiritual searchers have chosen to take their spiritual questions to the church. Why, I wonder. Are contemporary Americans convinced that true spiritual answers are only to be found outside the church? Is it because they seek answers that are self-centered rather than God-centered? Or is it because they become sincerely disillusioned with the church that's been undermined by a secular society that does not provide answers that address it? And as a result of this lack of trust in the church as a resource for making a sense of it all, many have chosen either to condemn it, to ignore it, or minimize their commitment to it. That observation helps us to answer today's question. It gives us the context for today's question. Why is it so hard to make going to church a priority sometimes? I'm reading from the card. Well, what was on the card? I typed it onto my notes here. Why is it so hard to make going to church a priority? It just seems like there's so much in the weekends, not enough time. And certainly there are a lot of reasons we don't make church a priority. A lot of answers to the question, things like I'm too busy or I'm too hurt by somebody in the church or the church as a whole, or I don't need it, or I can be just as spiritual by going out into nature, studying the Bible on my own, and so spiritual growth can be done and happen in isolation. 
these beliefs belittle the importance of community. And that's kind of the word I really want to focus on today. Why? Make it a priority? Why is it so hard? It's because we don't get a true value of what community needs to look like. This morning, I want to respond to that question. Why should I make going to church a priority? To respond, we're going to look at several biblical passages to learn that we need each other to grow spiritually and to do the work of Christ. First response to our question, why should I make going to church a priority is this. Number one, as believers in Jesus, you belong to his community. Let's read Acts chapter 2, 42 to verse 46. But before we read that, let me just give a little context for it. The book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit and his work in forming the early church from its time of birth. In Acts 1, Jesus had told his disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit who will empower the church to be witnesses throughout the world. And as he ascended, we learned that they did wait. They waited in the upper room and the Holy Spirit did come on that day of Pentecost. And we immediately see a transformation in these beleaguered disciples. Something changed. They're energized. They're empowered. And right after that, here's what we read took place. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That almost becomes a template for what God's ideal would look like if it could ever be there. But there's a word called koinonia and I want to look at the meaning of koinonia that word describes what we see here it is the Greek word koinonia it's often translated fellowship but fellowship doesn't give the full impact of the word it literally means to to have or to share in common which is the basis of our word community and in the Greek the same idea would have, in, would have ensued the early church was a voluntary community of spirit-filled believers who shared a common purpose or mission to know Christ and to make him known. Elton Trubrod describes it as the company that committed. They were like a zealous band or army of faithful believers devoted to conquering the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because they knew it was the most important truth and reality people could know. They, they took orders from their generals, the apostles. They trained for duty. They cared for their wounded. God's work happens best in community. As children... We form a household. The Apostle John told his disciples in his first epistle that we become children of God when accepting Jesus. He describes it this way. He said, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now the Apostle Paul takes this idea of a family or being children of God a step further in describing the church. He says this, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
And in him, you two are being built together, become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here we see the mixed metaphors of children and household and of a temple. When you become a follower of Christ, you become part of that household. You become part of that temple. You become where the Holy Spirit resides within you individually and with us corporately. But we also learn that our common faith creates a fellowship of the light. I love the imagery here that John gives in 1 John 1, 1 to 7. He says, so one of the things that's common in faith is Jesus Christ. The faith is part of our koinonia. The one thing we share in common is that Jesus Christ is God. And he died on the cross and he was buried and rose again. That's a common truth, a common reality work from. John tells us this in his book. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, referring to Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. When we know Jesus and we walk in Christ, we are a fellowship of light. We're part of a community of light, a koinonia. Now, I think most people long for that kind of fellowship that's identified in these verses. But for some reason, we don't seem to find it, often not even in the church. Maybe it's because of the business of our lives. It may even be the strange complexity of persons that live within our own soul. Maybe sometimes the problem is the church, sometimes it is the church, but maybe the problem sometimes is us. It's our own issues. Do you really know who you are? Can you put our identity into words to get a handle on it? Edward Sanford Martin pictured himself this way in a poem called My Name is Legion. He says this, Within my earthly temple there's a crowd. There's one of us that's humble and one that's proud. There's one that's brokenhearted for his sins. Another one that's unrepentant sits and grins. There's one that loves his neighbor as himself and one that cares but not for fame and pelf. For much eroding care, I should be free if I could determine which is me. That's us, isn't it? Complicated, bewildering, exciting, frustrating selves live within each and every one of us. Maybe the reason we can't reach out to someone or share a community with others is that even we don't even know who we really are, what self we really are what we can share of ourselves. Maybe it's fear that keeps us from reaching out to others. Maybe we're afraid that if we start opening ourselves up to others, we allow a friend to get to know us and we let the barriers down and knock the walls away. What's left, we're afraid that we'll turn somebody else off and send them packing. One pastor writes this. A young woman came to me 15 years ago. Her life was a masterpiece of success and social graces and all the things that others would compliment her for. They idealized her, thought she was something to be admired. But inside, she told me, she felt like a bowl of jelly. 
No one could have seen it by looking at her. She hid it so well. It was the hiding of herself that caused her to lose relationships with other people. She wasn't even sure why she did it. I encouraged her to write down the things that she was feeling inside so that we'd have something to talk about together. And one day she handed me a slip of paper that said this. I wonder if I'm truly able to give of myself. I'm so caught up in watching my shaky moods that I feel guilty. I don't want people to know how scared I am. I'm intimidated by others. Help. A lot of people feel that way. They're afraid to open up because they see their own vulnerabilities and their own shortcomings, and it hinders their ability to have community. If those fears are within, then as much as I need and want other people, I'll never be able to reach out and care for them. I cry for help, but I don't really want anyone to come running. Jesus created us to live in community. That's why he created the church. And when we see ourselves as a community of committed Christ followers, we're called to know Christ. We realize that we are part of that community and our role is in building up others as they build us up is vital to the health of the church. Eugene Peterson states it this way. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness of the Christian life apart from the immersion in and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. There's a second response to our question, why should I make going to church a priority? It's this, your spiritual growth happens in the context of community. It's where it takes place. One of the most clear passages about the reason to meet together as the church is stated by the author of Hebrews who says this, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is the body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We are here to build each other up. We are here to encourage one another. And you can't do that in isolation. It's part of community. Another thing to note is this, is so that we encourage each other and avoid drifting away. One of the reasons we meet with believers is the risk of spiritual drift. You know what I'm talking about. It's not uncommon to see someone who comes to faith in Christ start with excitement, but over time they drift away when he realizes the church is filled with imperfect people just like himself. One of C.S. Lewis' better-known works called The Screwtape Letters highlights interactions between Screwtape, a senior demon, and instructor, Wormwood, a demon in training. Screwtape lays out an effective way to undermine the words of God and cause those who follow Christ to abandon their beliefs and their Christian commitment. Wiley Screwtape gives Wormwood this gem of wisdom regarding the temptation to cause one to abandon belief in God. Notice what Screwtape tells his trainee demon. He said, you will say that these are all very small sins and doubtless like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, God, in this case. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. 
The screw tape letters remind us of this final truth. Following Christ and growing in affection for him in the words of God requires staying intentionally focused on the things of God rather than allowing the lesser things of this world to control one's heart. A very similar refrain is given in Hebrews 2.1 that says, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Pay close attention to your heart, your affections. If you don't, the drift into unbelief is knocking at the heart's door. And I hear some stories of men and women who once professed strong belief in the things of God and now are walking away into unbelief. I want to know what that drift looks like, lest I too become a story of one who once believes and now walks in unbelief. I won't get into all the implications of that theologically except to say this. A drift away from the church has a high risk of drifting away from Christ. We help each other to avoid that. Secondly, it helps shapes us into the image of Christ. When living in isolation apart from the church, we have no one to influence and shape our thoughts and our actions. It's like placing a plain, ugly rocks in a rock tumbler. It used to be a hobby of mine that I would polish rocks. I had a little rock tumbler and I would take old, dull-looking rocks and put some paste into it, a polishing grit, I would start the tumbler and let it go for days and the rough edges are removed and they become shiny and beautiful and they're removed at the appropriate time. That's what happens when we come together as a church. That grit helps shape us. That bouncing together with other rocks takes off the smooth edges and it polishes us to make something beautiful. But it also puts a check on our sinful and selfish bent. Galatians 1, 6, 1 to 2 reminds us that we have this tendency and we need to help confront each other. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. But watch yourselves or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We need people to come and say, hey, brother, I love you. Love you to death. Love you in Christ. But you're off course. What can we do to help get you back? We need that. In Europe, 400 years ago, Charles IV was the Holy Roman Emperor. But he got tired of being in that position, so he gave up the title before he died. He was tired, he said, of all the petty bickering and all the national wars and all the fighting and all the bloodshed, and he turned over the reins of power to his son, Philip II. And there Charles went home to his palace in Spain. He set himself to do some unfinished projects, and one of those projects was this. He had six clocks in the house, and he wanted them all to chime at exactly the same hour together. But those clocks, no matter how much he adjusted them, continued to ring at slightly different moments, and in his memoirs he writes this. How is it possible for six different clocks to chime all at the same time? And he reflects on it even further. He says, how is it even possible or, even, or impossible for the six nations of the Holy Roman Empire to live in harmony? It can't be done. It's impossible, not even if they call themselves Christians. Sometimes the petty bickering of distracted Christians turns people away from what should be God's church. The fact is we need the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our churches in order to become the holy community that God wants us to be. And you're part of that community, and in that community you grow. And you, like others in the church, must avoid getting distracted. And apart from the Holy Spirit in your life and in the life of the church, the bickering and the complaining are no different than any other people that are gathering together. With the Holy Spirit, we can be a powerful force to enable us to grow. And that's what we all be making sure our relationship with God is sound and right so the Spirit can work in us and work in our church. There's a third response to the question, why should I make going to church a priority? And that is Jesus uses you and the church to represent him. 
The church is an extension of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is a principle that this church emphasizes often because it's so important. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that we are called the body of Christ. We are his visible presence on earth. His work, his purpose, his desires are our desires. We are first and foremost his church. How does it happen? It happens, Paul says, when people come together to take their cues from Jesus Christ as the head of the the body. We each have to ask, what is he thinking? What is he doing? What is he wanting? Then that's what I want to do and think and desire as well. And when I'm surrounded by other people who are wanting and thinking and doing the same things, I belong. I belong to Christ and I belong to others because they belong to Christ. Community becomes a reality, not out of our ability to get along, but our ability to be connected to the source and thought of power. We also learn called Christ's ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.12 reminds us, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. An ambassador is the official representative of his government. In a sense, he bears the image of his nation. Now imagine that a foreign government seizes the ambassador and kills him. That wouldn't simply be murder of a single human being. It would also be an act of war against the government the ambassador represents. In a similar way, one person's murdering another person is an act of war against God. It's an attempt to murder God by killing those who bear his image. God takes seriously when we are his ambassadors when the world persecutes us because we are part of him. But there's another point that comes into play in our, our question in that it helps us remain faithful in a hostile world. In the New Testament, we find over 100 verses. 47 of those are followers of Jesus and 43 are presented from Paul. One-third of the one another commands deal with the unity of the church. Let me give you just a brief example. It says, be at peace with one another. We're told, don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before the beginning of the Eucharist. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Seriously, guys, I don't eat others too much. So um, I don't think I have an issue with that one. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another. Don't pay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess your sins to one another. One-third of them instruct Christians to love one another. You get the point? We need one another. It's how we grow. That's how we build each other up. And in a hostile world, we need that support and we need that encouragement. When Secretary of State during the Reagan administration, George Shultz, he kept a large globe in his office. And when the newly appointed ambassadors had an interview with him, and when ambassador returning from their post for their first visit with him were leaving his office, Shultz would test them. He would say, you have to go over to the globe and prove to me that you can identify your country. And they would go over and they would spin the globe and they would put their finger on the country to which they were sent unerringly, almost without exception. When Schultz's old friend and former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield was appointed ambassador to Japan, even he was put to the test. And this time, however, Ambassador Mansfield spun the globe and put his hand on the United States and said, this is my country. On June 17, 1993, Schultz related to this to Brian DeLamb on C-SPAN's book note said the secretary I've told the story subsequently to all the ambassadors going out never forget you're over there in that country but your country 
is the United States. You're there to represent us, take care of our interests, and never forget it, and you're representing the best country in the world. Now, whether you believe with that is not the point. But the point is to me is this, that we are ambassadors of Jesus, and our home is where? In heaven. We represent him. This world is not our home. I'm just a passing through as the old hymn goes. The church of which you are part of, if you believe in Jesus, represents Jesus on this earth. It's not our home, but we are ambassadors as individuals and of the church of Jesus Christ. So this morning we responded to the question, why should I make church a priority? We looked at several biblical passages and learned that we need each other to grow spiritually and to do the work of Christ. It's unfortunate that a time that the world needs the church the most has chosen to look elsewhere for direction and its consequences are showing. The true church of Jesus provides what the world needs most. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of Christ's body and we need you as that part. Just some things to reflect on as we take away from this. An early warning sign of the believer's heart is turning one's eyes off Jesus Christ and a fixation on the things that are very temporary in nature. There's nothing wrong with having the things of this world, a nice car, a nice house, a good job. These things by themselves are morally neutral. They become dangerous when they find their way into the inner place of one's being where identity is formed and protected. Look at my car. Look at my house. Look at what I've got. It's a dangerous path to go down. Similarly, supportive friends. A loving spouse, wonderful children can become a danger if we put them ahead of Christ. The innermost part of one's being is where only Christ should sit and rule. That is why Christ repeatedly told those who followed him that it's impossible to serve two masters. You have to choose. We also can reflect on this, that the believer must regularly evaluate his relationship with Christ and the church must evaluate how well it's doing in being Christ's ambassadors to the world. It's a charge we're all called to be part of and it's one we need to guard very carefully. I'm going to add a fourth one to this. And that is, as a church, we believe in community. And the way we do it is not just through meetings like this, worship sessions, but we have life groups. That's where you get to know people. That's where you can share your heart. That's where you can interact with people and share life with them. And that's where the crux of spiritual growth can happen. You know, we spend hours and hours watching TV, doing entertainment, going to school, going to work. But how much time do you spend with Christ and his people? Writer and NPR commentator Heather King, a recovering alcoholic who has come to faith in Christ, she reflected on her initial experience within the church. And I'm quoting from her. She says, My first impulse was to thank my God. I don't want to get sober. Or in the case of the church, worship. With these nutcases. It's referring to us. Or boring people or people with diff- different political tastes in music, food, books, or whatever. Nothing shatters our eagles like worshiping as people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in this extremely unpromising people. People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves. People who are us. But we don't come to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come to, because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place to be while struggling to figure out what that means. We come because we're hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he loves everyone else. We need each other. We come and we make it a priority because community is the essence of growth, the heart of growth.